0: Amos chapter number 1. If you're new to Wednesday night Bible study, what we're doing on these Wednesday nights is providing an overview of an entire Bible. So if you come on Sunday morning, you get a few verses. But if you come on Wednesday night, you get a whole book. So we're going to look at all of the nine chapters, parts of all of the nine chapters of the book of Amos in the time that we have together. Interestingly, Amos the prophet prophesied during a time of great national prosperity And a lot of real excitement in the nation of of Israel. Jeroboam II was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Uzziah of Isaiah 6 fame was king in the southern kingdom, Judah in the south. Both in the north and in the south, things were really good for the people of Israel. The Judean kingdom was flourishing. Its borders were busting at the seams. It was a time of economic prosperity both in the north and in the south. But as we've experienced in our personal lives, and as you have observed in all of Israel's history, times of prosperity were seldom concurrent with times of real spiritual progress. In fact, it happens the opposite for us. We do most of our growth. We we are most keenly aware of our need and our dependence on God during seasons of suffering and loss. We don't do well with prosperity, let's just be honest. We are much like our forebears, the nation of Israel. Things are going good, and they act like knuckleheads, and God brings them down about six rungs. And they remember how desperately they need God. You've experienced the same in all likelihood in your personal walk as well. Those are the circumstances under which Amos prophesies. Now, there's a great deal of focus here in the book of Amos on the care that God has, not only for what they do, but for how they do it. At the same time that there's this prosperity and optimism in Israel, and this is a book specifically to the northern kingdom. Amos is a prophet from the south, and he goes up north to tell them the error of their ways. He's from Tekoa, Amos 1 says, a little outpost from the city of Jerusalem about 10 miles out. But God sends him into the northern kingdom to prophesy. And as we'll see in just a moment, they really love his preaching in the beginning. It doesn't take long for them not to care for his preaching, but in the beginning they really like his preaching. So he goes up into the northern kingdom and he preaches to them, he prophesies to them about a judgment that is to come against the nations and eventually a judgment that is to come against the nation of Israel. Now they're astonished at this message because not only are they prospering financially and otherwise, not only is the nation growing in terms of its boundaries being expanded, but they are practicing their religion. You can see at a number of points, there's a couple that we'll make reference to in our time together tonight, but if you read through Amos, you'll find that there are all kinds of religious practices being exercised. The problem is that they are void of any significance, that they are worshiping with their mouth when their heart is far from God. So the interest here is not only in what they are doing, but the spirit with which they do it. I, I think this is an ethical principle that's worthy of mentioning, revisiting for us here for just a moment. It, it matters for us as kingdom people, not only what we do, but how we do it. To, to put that in the terms of an ethicist, the ends do not justify the means. The best example of that is Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Everything that Satan offers Jesus, he ultimately receives from the Father. Everything that Satan offers Jesus, he deserves to have in that moment. He could have had it in an instant, and he deserved to have it. But, but Jesus is concerned not just with the outcome, but the means of reaching that outcome, and we ought to be as well. We ought to never be a people of political expedience or pragmatism, meaning just because it works does not mean it's a good idea for Christian folk. So there's a great deal of interest in that theme and that topic in the book of Amos, and you can see that at a variety of different points. There's some pretty major themes in Amos that are not in the outline that I've provided for you tonight, and hopefully in the time that we have together, we'll be able to touch on some of those themes as well. I want us to start in chapter 1 for obvious reasons, and I want us to note here that Amos is pressing the fact that God's people are responsible for their actions, In other words, if I could put that in a Christian context, we don't get to act a fool and then stick a cross on it and feel justified in our actions. Now, that seems kind of far out, but but you're seeing that in very real ways. In the news cycle, you're seeing that in very real ways. We need to be careful of that in our own personal lives that we don't feel justified in our injustices just because we've slapped a cross on something that we've elected to do or feel as though we've been absolved of all of our injustices because we've claimed the name of Jesus. What we've experienced in the New Covenant is that our confession of faith in Jesus, a truly heartfelt confession of faith in Jesus, has a radical impact on everything that we do. We are changed, transformed from the inside out. Name is chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says these are the words of Amos, who was, the, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we're talking here mid-8th century for those of you who enjoy historically locating uh, the books of the Old Testament. We don't know anything about this earthquake. I would love to know about the earthquake. It would help us to better understand the specific date of Amos' prophecy, but I'm not sure that that would provide a great deal of in- insight into the book. Verse 2 says, the Lord roars from Zion and raises his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Now there's some kind of poetic language there for three crimes, even four. is kind of a, a nice literary way of saying for a whole bunch of misdeeds, the time for judgment has come. They've not sinned against God once, not twice, not three times, but four times. And the implication is the day has come for Damascus to be judged for their sin. Now they're Six instances of nations being referenced here, and God speaks in each specific nation's situation and says, For these reasons, judgment is about to come on us. Uh, In the case of uh, Damascus, it was for threshing Gilead with iron sledges. There was a battle that ensued between Damascus and Gilead, and the treatment of uh, those from Gilead, of the people from Gilead, was severe, much more severe than what it needed to be. And that seems to have been the sin, the straw that broke the camel's back. In chapter, or in verse 6, rather, the Bible says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza, that's the Philistines, for three crimes, even four. I think we have a little interference. Craig, would you tell him that he's preaching to us? Can I talk over him and you guys not be incredibly distracted? So in verse, maybe, maybe not. In verse 6, Gaza is a reference to the Philistine people. The Philistines are, we're good? Hey, we're good. I'm off? I'm off. Now nobody's preaching. How about now? Just me, no Derek? All right, here we go. So Gaza is, is, that's the Philistines, and the Philistines are longtime enemies of the people of Israel, way back into the time of, of David. They are the arch nemesis of the people of Israel, and here Amos is prophesying God's judgment against them for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. Now the community is not identified here, but there's a people that have been exiled from their land and sold into slavery to the Edomite people. Next up in verse number nine are the people of Tyre. Here the Bible says, I'll not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty of brotherhood. Now, in this case, the reference is to the people of Israel. Um, Israelites have been handed over in slavery by their brothers, Edom. Remember, the Edomites are. Uh, descendants of Israel, they are distant brothers, they're relatives. The book of Obadiah, the smallest book in the Old Testament, is a book of condemnation against the Edomites because as they were being, the people of Israel were carried into the Babylonian captivity, the Edomites not only didn't help them, but they sneered at them and made fun of them as they were being carried away captive. In verse number 13, God says, I'll not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. They killed the unborn children of the people of Gilead in an effort to enlarge their territory. I would have you to note, to write down big and bold, and to never forget that God has always, since the dawn of time, and will always, until the end of time, be against the murder of unborn children. It's this crime for which the Ammonites are condemned. In chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, I'll not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Now, we have another sort of isolated, unique kind of situation here, but this, again, is the sin that broke the camel's back. Now, you've had six nations, essentially, in chapters 1 and 2 that have been listed, and in each case, God has, through the prophetic ministry of Amos, proclaimed judgment against them. Now, I got to tell you, if you're an Israelite and a revival preacher comes to town and he says, "I'm going to tell you who's going to hell." It's all those people from Tyre and Moat and Moab and Edom and all those Ammonites, God's going to kill all of them. They're all in trouble. The the congregation is just going bananas, right? Amen and amen and amen to that. But we move a little closer to home in the next passage. In fact, in verse four, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and haven't kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I'll send fire against Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. In verse 6, he continues and addresses the nation of Israel. They they might have been a little antsy about this word of condemnation against Judah. But remember, we're talking about some north-south tension. So maybe the Israelites even embraced this idea of Judah coming under the judgment of God. In verse 6, the Bible says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four. And then God begins to speak to their evil. Now, we, we committed the time and went through the work of going through those first six nations, and we might even say seven if we include Judah in that list, to note the heinous nature of their sin. It would not have been difficult for the people of Israel to identify and to understand the darkness of someone else's sin. But it's often very difficult for us to identify and to see the darkness of our own sin. Now, they asked the king of Israel to have Amos deported and sent back where he came from in just a few chapters. That's the sentiment of the people when they hear this word of condemnation against themselves. But I, I'm, just, I'm just cautioning us collectively as a people that we be careful that in sifting after and looking after the, 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 uh, the splinter in our brother's eye, we don't overlook the log that's in our own. Here God says in essence, and he says it explicitly elsewhere in the book of Amos, Israel, you are no better than these other nations that have just been listed and the heinous crimes that they've committed. You, you are no better in your sin than they. In fact, if anything, the stakes have been raised for the people of Israel because to whom much is given, much is required. The people of Israel and for that matter the people of Judah are operating within a different system under the covenant of God. They have the law of God, insight into who God is and what God requires of them. Whereas these other pagan nations are just ambling about in darkness. These are people who have beheld the light and continue to wander in darkness we need to be careful that we don't excuse ourselves from the convicting work of God's holy spirit because we've learned the language of plastering the cross or the blood of jesus over our transgression i don't i don't say that in a way to demean the power of that or uh, in any way to marginalize the significance of that truly we have been covered in the blood of jesus christ but that in no way justifies our our persistence in injustice. God has called us to a higher standard. Even for the people of God, we are responsible for our actions. And woe unto us who seem to have an incredible knack for identifying the sins of someone else, but cannot see the sins of our own house. That's precisely what's unfolding for the people of Israel. Now, In verses 6 through 8, God describes three of the chief sins in the nation of Israel. Verse 6 says, again, I'll not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and block the path of the needy. This is a system of injustice, favoritism, the rich are oppressing the poor, using their wealth to further push the poor out of any opportunity they might have otherwise had. This is chief among the sins of the people of Judah. In verse 7, the remainder of verse 7, the Bible says, A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl profaning my holy name. This is a, a radical example of sexual immorality used to sort of envelop the whole of sexual immorality. All, this, all of the sins, every expression of sexual immorality was named among the people of Israel during the time during which Amos was prophesying. And then in verse 8, the Bible says, they stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Let me sort of unpack what's going on there. They stretch out next to the altar in prayer on garments that have been taken in collateral. In other words, they're lo- the wealthy are loaning money to the poor or, and they're taking as collateral the cloak off their back. Now, you remember a few weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said if someone would sue you and take away your, your, your shirt or your tunic, give them your cloak as well? Go beyond what is reasonable. Go beyond what the law requires because the law would prohibit taking a person's coat overnight if you were to take that as collateral it had to be returned by the end of the day because a person could freeze to death or their health could be compromised as a result of not having that so they they have in their possession they're stretching themselves out on ill-gotten gains praying before the altar and then the scripture says they drink wine obtained through fines everything they have All of of the things that they're using in the worship of God have been obtained in ways that are a violation of God's standard. We're back at this idea of not what you do, but how you do it, right? So they're going through all of the religious motions, but their heart is far from God. Even the things that they use in their expressions of worship have been attained in ways that, that defy sensibility in the context of God's law. So there's religious swindling that's happening in, in Israel's culture. That's the best phrase I could come up with to sort of catch-all for what's going on in the nation of Israel, and we see a fair amount of religious swindling at work in the world around us today. So in essence, in chapters 1 and 2, God has called the people of Israel to focus their attention on their own sin. Now again, this is a time of great prosperity, a time of excitement and optimism, and often in our comfort. We can't feel the sharp sting of God's convicting spirit. And the same proved to be true for the nation of Israel under these circumstances. There's a fair amount of emphasis in the book of Amos on God's purpose in bringing judgment. When God brings judgment, what does he intend to do? And your second point in the outline notes that God's purpose in judgment is destruction for correction. I came close to saying God's purpose in judgment is correction, not destruction, but that's not entirely true. Sometimes God's purpose in in judgment is destruction, whether it be to destroy the idols in our lives as believers, or even in the event of of God uh, destroying Um, someone who has rebelled against him in great ways God even destroying nations God destroying any number of things oftentimes God just destroys in a way of bringing about some sense of purification to the creation itself the flood comes to destroy the world as it was known to, to whitewash the world from the crimes and sins of those in Noah's day sometimes God works in judgment to bring about destruction but God always works in judgment to bring about correction. Even when the destruction comes, it comes in an effort on the part of our God to, to bring about a nearness to himself, to reconcile his people to himself, to destroy the idols in our life that separate us from him, and at times even to destroy the individuals or the nations that might separate his people from him. Look to chapter 3 and verse number 3. There's a series of rhetorical questions that are asked here, beginning in verse 3, all of which point to this idea that God always has a purpose in judgment. It's sort of of a prelude to what Amos is going to say later in the book of Amos when he says judgment is coming, and God is up to something in the judgment that comes. In verse 3, the Bible says, Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? In other words, God says, If we're going to be in this thing together, Israel... We're going to have to be on the same page. If we're going to be together, we're going to have to walk together. And God's not changing his walk to accommodate our standards. We're going to have to get on the same page. In verse 4, God says, Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? In other words, God says, I've got something to say. There's a mouthpiece for me in Israel named Amos, and he's there for a specific reason. Amos is one of my favorite prophets because he's not a professional prophet, right? He was among the sheep breeders and the sheep herders. He was just out tending a flock, doing his thing. He was working. Amos is a bivocational prophet. God says, get up from Tekoa and go up into into the north and tell him what I have to say. God says, a lion doesn't roar unless there's something to roar about. When Amos speaks, he has something to say. When I speak, God says, I have something to say. In verse 5, the Bible says, Does a bird land in a trap or on the ground if there's no bait for it? Does a trap spring from the ground when it's caught nothing? If a ram's horn is blown in a city, aren't people afraid? If a disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? In other words, there is purpose, 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 purpose behind everything that the Lord does. And the last rhetorical question we read there, if disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it, is a note of reminder, even as they're encouraged, that there's purpose behind God's design, that what God's about to do in Israel has an intent. It's a reminder that it is God who is behind the disaster that's about to befall them, not some set of circumstances beyond his or their control. God's purpose in judgment here is for correction. Now turn all the way to the other end of the book of Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. If there's one thing that all of the prophets, major and minor, have in common, it is this. In spite of the intense focus on the judgment of God against his people and the nations, there is always the promise of restoration and peace that is to come. We know from this side of the cross that that restoration and that peace comes only through Jesus Christ. It was a hope yet uh, looked forward to, anticipated in the days of Amos and others. Verse 11 says, And that day I'll restore the fallen booth of David. I'll repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. This is the Lord's declaration. He will do this. Hear this. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when the plowman will overtake the reaper, the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with it. Now, it may be difficult for us to understand these sort of cultural references, but, but it's clear in verse 14 what all of these are indicating. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I'll plant them on their land and they'll never again be uprooted from the land I've given them. Yahweh your God has spoken. In spite of the intense judgment that was to come against them, there was the promise of restoration and peace through Jesus Christ. And I I would say to you that whatever difficult or dark experience you might encounter, Whether it be an overt act of judgment against your rebelliousness or or something that seemingly comes like a bolt from the blue, that God has a design, that God has a purpose for what befalls us. That no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, no matter how heartbreaking that season of your life may be, there is always for the people of God the promise of restoration and peace through Jesus Christ. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And his trust was well placed. There is the promise, in spite of the judgment that is such a focal point in the book of Amos, there is the promise of restoration and peace that is to come. Here's the third thing I want you to see, and we've alluded to this already, but I I want us to see it in in clear detail here in chapters 4 and 6. God cares what we do, and God cares how we do it specifically when it comes to what we'll call religious practice. I never know how to handle the word religion because it can mean a good thing and it can mean a bad thing. But I I mean it here in the most generic of ways, if that's possible. When it comes to what we do under the guise of religious practice, it matters not only what we might do externally, what we might say, what we might sing, how or where we might bow, but our heart our our heart. Man looks on the outer man, but God sees our heart. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. <laughs> Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan. Now, this is a reference to many of the women of Israel, but not, I would advise you to not use this language with the women of America. <laughs> this is really not about personal appearance as much as it is about Disposition. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who are on the hills of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. The Lord God is sworn by his holiness. Look, the days are coming when you'll be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You'll go through breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you'll be driving along toward Harmon, be driven rather along toward Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. Come to Bethel and rebel, rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thank offering and loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the Lord's declaration. Now he called them cows in verse 1, which is not the most flattering thing to be called for a lady. And, and, And he calls them that, again, not because of appearance, but because of disposition. And something of their disposition is described. Here they are lazily lying around the hills of Samaria, the mountains of Samaria, basically ordering their husbands to bring them drink. And in context, it would seem this is a reference to strong drink. So they're laying around lazily drunk. And there's all kinds of other expressions of immorality that are implied in the passage. But note that these are not people who are cut off from religious practice in Israel, Bethel is the heart of religious of worship across the northern kingdom in order to maintain their ident- identity as a kingdom unique and separate from Judah in the south. Gilgal was among those significant places of worship. And here they're described as practicing religiously in a variety of different ways, bringing sacrifices every morning, even bringing their tithe every three days, offering leavened bread as a thank offering, shouting loudly their free will offerings, they're, they're, they're doing so many of the things that would have been customary in true and undefiled religion in the days of Amos. But again, they do it with a heart that is far from God. They do the right stuff, but they do it in all the wrong way. I, I don't know that we can talk enough about this because we really struggle to see our own hypocrisy, right? It's easy to see everyone else's. not so easy to see our own but we need to be really cautious in this area. And I I would just say to you that church is a terrible place to hide from God. It's a great place to be found by God, but it's an awful place to hide from God. And from time to time, I, I think our tendency is to hide from God within the context of church or religious practice. And we need to be very, very cautious about that. You, you can go about all of the right practices with a heart that's far from God and woe be unto us if we do. I think it's a good thing. This is kind of, we'll, we'll chase this for just a moment. It's a good thing to be focused and prayerful on a Saturday night before a Sunday of worship. I know what Sundays look like for moms and dads. Now, let me tell you one of the great benefits of being the pastor I leave before Brandy and the kids get ready every Sunday morning, and I have for 16 years. But I hear stories, right? I get the reports after church, and often I can read the report on my wife's face as I'm standing up there preaching on Sunday morning. And and, and, and I, I know that we don't only worship within the context of a Sunday morning worship service, at least I hope we don't, but we need we need to be careful that as we approach our personal worship time, corporate worship time, whatever it is that we set our hand to do to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we're approaching that in in a sober kind of way, reflecting on who we are and where we stand with the Lord. God cares what we do and he cares about how we do it as well. There's another example of this in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Let's turn to that just quickly. Chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hills of Samaria. Of Samaria. Are you familiar with that phrase, at ease in Zion? This is where it comes from in Amos 6 and 1. The notable people in the first of the nation is the notable people in this first of the nations. Those the house of Israel comes to cross over to Calna and see. Go from there to great Hamath. Go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? You dismiss any thought of the evil day and bring in a reign of violence. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches and dine on, dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowl full and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they'll now go into exile as the first of the captives and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. Same scenario, Right. Here are people who are living in a lap of luxury and they believe their blessed state to be a product of God's blessing on their life when they're living in an absolute defiance of God's will and design for their life. Be, be ca- careful that you don't allow your comfort, our affluence, and we all enjoy it, to desensitize you to the work of God's Holy Spirit. You know we could really get in the weeds and deal with some of the ways that we we confuse ourselves and mix ourselves. We, We condemn the prosperity gospel, but deep down in the dark recesses of our soul, in places we don't like to talk about, we still in subtle ways equate prosperity with spiritual blessedness. And the two of those are not the same. The two of those are not the same. We're just geared that way. It's a world system that we've been indoctrinated by since our very birth. And we need to be careful that we see things the way the Lord sees them and not the way the world around us does. Here's a fourth thing just quickly before we close in the book of Amos. It is, simply put, the day of the Lord. I think sometimes there's confusion about the day of the Lord in the Bible. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament can be a reference to a variety of things. When we think about the day of the Lord, we think about the day of the Lord. At the end of days, the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord language in the Old Testament especially can be a reference to a forthcoming cataclysmic event that may not be the day of the Lord. It's just one of the days of the Lord that will be experienced over time. The day of the Lord is a reference here to a moment in time in history that's going to shock the people of Israel, that's going to awaken the people of God, but it becomes, it grows, and in its fullest form in the New Testament is the day of the Lord when Christ comes to cleanse and to claim his church and to exact judgment and justice against a world that has rebelled against him. Look at chapter 5, verses 18 and following. Here the Bible says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It'll be darkness and not light. Are y'all tracking with what Amos is saying? He's saying to to the people of Israel, you're looking for the day of the Lord because you've convinced yourself it's going to be a day when God brings judgment against someone else. But Amos wants the people of Israel to know that when the day of the Lord comes, it will not be a season of light for them but a time of great darkness. Not only will the judgment of God come for the nations that have rebelled against God, but for Israel that had rebelled. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Now, that's a bad day. Now, one of, one of, the, one of the things that keeps me going in Bible Belt preaching ministry is the reality that we live in the midst of a people who would gladly join their voices together to say, bring on the day of the Lord, believing that for them it will be a day of light when it will be nothing more than a day of darkness. That's what's described in our passage. They will flee from the line of God's judgment only to be confronted by the bear. There's such great confusion in the world around us about what it means to be right with Jesus, about what the gospel means. Even in the last week, I, i I found myself burdened in special ways about this whole issue, about people that are a part of our life, my family's life, who I'm afraid are convinced. I know they're convinced that they're right with God, and I'm afraid that they're not, that they're not. Because the fruit's not there. A good, clear understanding of the gospel is not there, and there doesn't seem to be a real interest in attaining a good, clear understanding of the gospel or bearing fruit worthy of repentance. The day of the Lord is something that we can look forward to and celebrate and be enthusiastic for. It's not the kind of thing that should generate fear in the heart of the true believer. But for those whose hearts are far from God, there should be great fear with regards to the day of God. Verse 20 says, Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom, without any brightness in it? I hate, God says, I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. I'll have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fat and calf. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your hearts, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Religious hypocrisy is a major focus in the book of Amos, and far be it from us. May God purify our hearts. May he sanctify us before him through the work of his Holy Spirit. May the strength and stay of our soul be the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone. May God give us eyes to see our own sin even before we see the sins of others. A heart to be sensitive and discerning to the work of his Holy Spirit that God would reveal even our secret sin to us that we might confess it and walk worthily the calling with which we've been called. May God let justice flow like water among us and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Aren't you glad for grace and mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit that we find through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for an opportunity to reflect on who we are and where we stand. God, I, I pray that you would give us Lord, hearts of sincerity and honestness. Lord, that you'd give us a sober mind as we examine ourselves. Help us, Lord, to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. I I, I pray, God, that you would help us to address the log in our own eye before we attend to the splinter in our neighbors. I I pray, God, that that we would um, look upon those about us, uh, and and not with an overly harsh spirit of, of judgment, but with a compassion that would seek to lend a hand that would lift from difficulty and hardship and even rescue from the fires of sin. I, I, I read so much of our culture in what is described of Israel in the ministry of Amos. And it, it's a scary thing, God. Lord, they didn't see it. We're no better than they are. And I, and I fear, God, that there are great big glaring blind spots for us. So help us see. God, give us broken and contrite hearts over our sin, give us gladness and joy in what Jesus has done to atone for it. Fill us with your spirit and help us to walk in a way that would bring you honor and glory, Lord. Help us to walk with you, to be on the same page with you in the work that you seek to do in the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.